I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever, ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm particularly thrilled today to have as our guest, uh, my good friend, Doug DeLosa. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Having worked with the Innocence Project now for oh, 20 years in my role as a founding board member, I thought I had heard everything until I heard Doug's story. So you were living in Louisiana, right? You grew up there? I, I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, at the time, I wasn't living in New Orleans proper, but I was living just outside of New Orleans in the city of Kenner. I, I was married. Uh, my wife and I had been together a little over 10 years. We had two beautiful children, uh, a son who was seven at the time and a daughter who was five. 
Right. So you had a little yard and uh, and basically uh, so, some neighbors and sort of like they, what we think of in New York, we think everything's a cul-de-sac, right? We have this strange vision of America as a series of cul-de-sacs. But basically, uh, am I painting the right picture? Yes. Until it all went wrong. Uh, absolutely. Until that American dream turned into the American nightmare. Right. And it's a nightmare of proportions that are impossible to uh, overstate. You were at home with your wife and, 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 and kids, right? And, and tell it, us what happened. It was a typical Friday evening in our lives. Fast forward to about 2.30 in the morning on uh, Saturday morning, September 27th. And I woke up, sat up in bed. I heard a noise. The noise that I was positive I heard was our pet parrot squawking and fluttering around in its cage. I get up from bed, tell my wife I'm going to check on Andy. That was the name of the bird. And what was your wife's name? My wife's name was Glinda. Right. I get up. I go downstairs. As soon as I got to the foot of the stairs, one person came from the side of uh, me uh, out of our bathroom area, and this person immediately struck me with an object that I think was a piece of mop handle uh, or a broomstick. Another person came from the kitchen area and immediately knocked me to the ground, and the two individuals, I don't know how long it lasted, probably less than 30 seconds, kicked me, beat me, until I lost consciousness. Uh, sometime later, I was regaining consciousness. I'm not sure how long I laid on the floor, but I realized the thing that sort of frightened me at first, I couldn't move. My hands and feet were tied behind my back. I was hogtied, and I was struggling to gain consciousness and put my thought process together to figure out what had happened. And after whether it was one minute or ten minutes, I started calling for my wife. Didn't get any response at all. Uh, so you're at the foot of the stairs. At the foot of the stairs uh, inside of what would have been our den. Right. And, and, she's, a, and she's upstairs. She's presumably, up, presumably she's, upstairs in the bedroom. She's where you upstairs left in the bedroom. Right. Uh, getting no response at all from my wife, I called for my seven-year-old son, Dennis. And on the third or the fourth call from my son... I heard him stirring upstairs. He answered me. Initially, he went into the master bedroom. And he, I could hear him say, Daddy, where are you? I see Mommy, but she's sleeping. And I said, Daddy's downstairs. Please come downstairs. He came downstairs, and I told him, Dennis, two bad men had broken in the house and they hurt daddy, but I'm going to be all right. I need you to untie my hands. He couldn't untie my hands because the rope was tied so tightly. Then I asked him to go in the kitchen, please get a knife and try to cut the rope. He came back with a knife, but he was panicking because he said, Daddy, I'm scared because I can see four legs under the um, blind or the curtain in the uh, kitchen leading out to the patio, 
I can see people standing on the patio and I'm afraid it's the bad men that hurt you. And I sort of panicked myself then and I said, Dennis, pick up the phone. The phone was right there on the landing of the, uh, the stairs. I said, dial 911. And he immediately picked up the phone, dialed 911. He says, what do I say? And I said, just tell him you need help, that your daddy's hurt and, two, um, and you had seen um, two men standing on the patio. I don't think he told him that exact. Anyway, he got their attention, and within minutes, police arrived on the scene. When, right, and then and then the police arrive on the scene, and then this is where things start to really get crazy, right? Because it seems like a pretty simple situation. You're hogtied, right? The police enter. The first thing one of them does is kneel down next to me, ask me if I'm all right. I guess I, ba- I basically tell him, yeah, I'm fine. He doesn't untie me, doesn't do anything. And I hear another officer goes upstairs and at that point in time, the next thing I hear him is kicking a door off the hinges. And it turned out that after my son had gone in the bedroom when I called him and he found his mother, what he described as being asleep, he must have pulled the door shut behind him and it just automatically locked. Uh, so... So he kicks in the door? He kicks in the door. When he kicks in the door, he really startles my daughter, who's in the bedroom next door, and she starts crying hysterically. And at that point, then my son starts crying hysterically, and I'm I'm getting pretty hysterical myself, laying on the floor. I'm still hogtied, and I'm telling her, what's going on? What's going on? And policeman is trying to restrain me and keep me on the ground which is not that hard you're hogtied but go ahead and and i'm like and he says don't worry everything will be fine and i mean within moments it seems like ambulance attendants arrived on the scene i couldn't hear exactly what they were being told but they were being told something about my wife was in the um bedroom upstairs and that somebody needed to get my daughter and bring her downstairs which they did And again, I don't know how much time was elapsing, but at some point in time, more police officers arrived on the scene. Eventually, someone cut me free. Uh, Moments after they cut me free, they told me that I would uh, have to be taken to the emergency room and that the other paramedic team was working on my wife, and I'd see her there. And also, mm. at, at some point in time, they asked me if there was anybody that they could call to take care of my children. I'm being treated in the emergency room. I don't know how much later. Uh, again, was it 10 or 15 minutes? Was it an hour later? My brother and a priest come into the emergency room and they inform me that my wife had been killed. And at this point, you're, I mean, you've just been through an uh, impossibly traumatic experience and now you're getting hit with this news and the, the whole world must be collapsing around you at this point in time. It was pretty hard to believe what I was being told. I, 
think I almost went into shock when they told me my wife had been killed. And I mean, I'm, I just can't process what I'm being told and come up with any logical reason why it had happened. And and then and then you get back with your kids um, and try to piece things back together. You had given the police the information that they wanted, right? The, about basically the story that you just told us. I, I had um, recalled everything I could remember to the police, except for um, when you were unconscious, of course, which is that that's the only missing part. But and then and then they they were having trouble solving the case, right? There had been considerable criticism of the police department for not solving or having any viable leads in this case, demanding to know from the police chief what were they doing, how were they protecting the neighborhood. I had gotten a little bit vocal, and I probably said on more than one occasion, all of these stupid son-of-a-bitches need to be fired because they don't appear to know what they're doing. Uh, Their actions were, in my mind, reminiscent of the old Keystone Cops in uh, slapstick comedies because it they just didn't appear to be very bright. Right. Okay. Uh, and so and obviously the, the police, uh, uh, you know, they're feeling a lot of pressure and they're feeling a little, uh, they're getting their back up about this. Right. Right. So then comes the craziest part, in some ways, the craziest part of the story. Right. Which is that now we're three months from the, the date of the crime, basically. Right? right. We're now the morning of December 29th. Uh, I was. It's, it's hot. It's hot in uh, Louisiana. It, it's very right? warm in Louisiana. Uh, I'm deciding I'm going to put out the Christmas tree. Uh, it's starting. It was a live tree. It's starting to drop needles all over. So I tell my children, I'll be right back. I'm just going to put the Christmas tree out for the trash. I've got a pair of cutoff jeans on, nothing else. And as I'm putting the tree in the back of my house by the um, curb for the trash, I hear Doug DeLosa turn around, and I sort of turn around, and I'm like almost in shock. I I have no idea how many police officers are there, a minimum of six, maybe ten or more. I have no, many, no idea how many news cameras are there. Probably as many news ca- uh, personnel were there as there were police officers pointing cameras at me. They... Uh, and the police pointing guns at me. And they say, you know why we're here? We're here to arrest you for the murder of your wife. And I'm just like thinking to myself, this can't be true. You know, this nightmare just keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, I knew that I had been labeled a suspect, but I never in my wildest imagination thought that it would evolve into an arrest. I'm not dressed with, except for with a pair of cutoffs on. My children are in their pajamas. And I asked the one detective, could I please go dress my children and call somebody to take them? Well, as I was changing their clothes, I turned to this man who couldn't have been more than two to three feet away from me, standing right in my face. And I asked him, I said, Detective Dote, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to my children? You know that I didn't kill my wife. And this police officer, when I asked him that question, he had the look of a wild man on his face, and he almost, I don't know how to describe it, uh, 
his voice uh, was almost venomous, and he says, man, fuck you, fuck your children, and fuck that dead wife of yours. I didn't ask that stupid bitch to die in my city. And, and he, he goes on to say, he says, why should I give a fuck about you or your children? Do you care about me or my children? My job's on the line. And he said, you have asked that I be terminated for incompetence. Well, you know what? I don't know who did it. Maybe I know you didn't do it, but I can build the case against you. So you're it. So you're, you know, you go to trial and you, they, well, they, they withheld several critical pieces of evidence from the defense that would, which is called a Brady violation, which, which would have uh, uh, excluded you and, and would have led to you being found innocent. Do you, want to, do you want to talk about that? The trial from start to finish, nine days had passed. And from the very beginning, the two district attorneys prosecuting me told the jury that they were never going to hear any direct evidence that tied me to this crime, that basically what they were trying to convict me on was a theory of how I did it and why I did it. And what was going to be important to the jury to find me guilty was that I had no evidence to support my story that two black men broke into my house that night, beat me unconscious, hogtied me, and at some point in time killed my wife. Right now, but the reason we know that you couldn't provide any proof is because they were withholding the proof that they had. They had the investigators. You didn't have investigators. They had all the guys sweeping the house and doing the whole thing. Exactly. There were fingerprints found in several places throughout the house that didn't belong to me, any of my family members, any of our friends, anyone, any member of the investigative team that had all been ruled out. And these fingerprints found throughout the house belong to someone, but we have no idea who they belong to. But they didn't tell you that. No, their fingerprint expert committed perjury on the stand when he said absolutely no other fingerprints um, were found in the house. Can we talk about the cab driver for a second? Because that's one to me, that's one that's always stuck in my mind. That's really, you know, some sometime. After I was arrested, well, actually, let's back up to right after my wife's funeral, three days after the murder, a taxi driver came forward to the Kenner Police Department and he said, I think I may have some uh, testimony that would help you catch the people who killed this lady, meaning my wife. And... As the story goes in his written uh, deposition to the police, he was dropping off a fare in that neighborhood, which at that time was exclusively white. There would have been no reason whatsoever to have seen blacks in that particular neighborhood. At least of all at three in the morning. Yeah, at least of all at three to four o'clock in the morning. And he goes on to give in his written deposition that As he was driving down this one street, he saw two black men leaving the vicinity of the front of my house, carrying what would have fit the description of some of the items I told police were taken from my house. And he says that 
as his light shone on the um, two men, it appeared that they panicked. They ran to a um, silver van that was waiting, and they sped off in a reckless manner. And he found that very unusual and thought it was important to bring that uh, testimony to the police, which he did. As it was, but they, of course, withheld that from the defense illegally. They withheld that and said that there was nobody had ever seen anything regarding uh, any black men in that neighborhood, much less in the vicinity of my home. Now, fast forward another six to seven months. I'm at trial. This, you know, good citizen is reading in the newspaper and hearing on the TV that I'm undergoing a trial for the murder of my wife. Well, he just doesn't understand. And at this point, he doesn't trust the police because he's already gone to the police twice. So he shows up at the courthouse, somehow manages to talk to one of the two or maybe perhaps both of the district attorneys who were trying the case, and he tells his story to them, and they very nonchalantly brush him off and said, oh, don't worry, Uh, we presented your written statement to Mr. Delos's attorney. He reviewed it, but in light of the overwhelming evidence against him, He knows that your testimony wouldn't do any good, so he's decided not to call you as a witness, which was a total lie. They hadn't given any of that information to my attorney, and one of the biggest parts of their case was over and over again, they repeated to the jury, no one, repeat, no one saw anything suspicious in that neighborhood that night, much less two black men, And that's why you must find Mr. DeLosa guilty, because he was lying. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old (laughs) us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. (laughs) Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The jury comes back. They find you guilty and sentence you to life in prison. Now the only thing that can make it worse is they're going to send you to what is arguably the worst prison in America, in Louisiana, which is the state which has the highest prison population by far. Louisiana does have three times higher rate of incarceration than the rest of the country per capita. And of course, America has a five times higher rate than the rest of the world. So it's off the chain. But now you're being sent to Angola Prison Farm. And... And let's, and let's talk about that. Well, arriving at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which they call Angola, it was beyond culture shock. I didn't know what to expect. I'd heard numerous rumors uh, that scared the hell out of me. Uh, but I arrive at Angola, and one of the first things that I guess was really strange was they put you in an initial classification to decide where you're going to be housed. And I'm going before these classification offices, and they decide that they're going to put me in a working cell block for my protection rather than general population. And then they make a statement that's pretty odd. They said that they don't have a white cell available to put me in, so I'd have to be sent to a security um, cell while they prepare a white cell. And I'm like, what the hell is a white cell? At that time, they still believed in segregating the white and black prisoners at Angola. They didn't uh, mix white and blacks in the same cell. But wow. my, my very first night in Angola, 
I'm in a disciplinary um, tier and I'm in a cell and there's someone down the uh, tier in another cell acting up and at some point in time he throws human waste on a security guard and I'm just like scared shitless. I don't know what's going on. They're guards in uh, what appear to be SWAT uniforms and riot shields and everything coming down the tier. They're dragging this person out uh, by force. They're beating him. And I guess I'm curious. I'm sort of looking, to, you know, I guess maybe I should have known better than to try to look when one of the guards saw me looking. He's like, what the fuck are you looking at? He turns around and sprayed me with a um, pepper spray, a mace for about 20, 30 seconds. Wow. And the only thing I knew was my lungs were burning, my face was burning, and it was sort of like a welcome to Angola. That was my first night in the penitentiary. So, uh, and then things get even crazier. So you end up uh, working on a chain gang. Is that right? I mean, I, I don't know that. Chain gang is a little bit misleading because we're not actually linked by chains. Right. Okay. But it's, it's a term it's, that it, applies it, to. It, it, it's uh, a group of inmates working under the supervision of gun guards on horses. In the swamps. It could be swamps. It could be anywhere on the farm. Here's a clip where Burl Kane, the warden talks about the infamous history of Louisiana State Penitentiary. The work in the farm is critical to Angola. That's what it is. It's a plantation prison. It was that way throughout its entire history. So very important that we have agriculture here on the farm. It provides work for the inmates, which, you know, is good for them because they have something to do to get, use up their energy and so forth. It turned out uh, that I was working in what they called Camp A Line 21 under one of the most vicious inhuman uh, farm bosses that Angola had at the time. And I found it difficult at my age and my physical condition to keep up with the average man who was only in their early 20s. And I'm 37, 38 years old at this time in horrible shape. But one of the things that this particular field uh, foreman used to enjoy doing to torment the people under his supervision, he would put us, say, on the levee, cutting um, high grass with what they called a ditch bank blade, which is it's impossible to describe on air, but it's this huge, heavy um, cutting blade. And what he would do is, they might have been close to 100 men in line, he would put us up on the levee and there would be two inmates with a water bucket and he'd tell the people with the water bucket, I want y'all to move about a mile down the um, road with the uh, gun guard supervising you. And he said, y'all keep moving that water bucket and don't let anybody have water. Cause it says until 10 people pass out uh, from the heat, I'm not letting anybody drink water. And that was a typical day working for this man, Max Shaw, where he would see people pass out, fall out, as we'd say, from heat stroke, heat exhaustion, from lack of water. And once uh, whatever number he arbitrarily determined, he wanted to pass out and be carried off in the back of a truck 
for disciplinary purposes, then he'd let everybody else uh, have a drink of water. And then, then things got really crazy because at one point the uh, you were singled out. It was at more than one point. I mean, it seemed it was something that happened day after day. Every time I'd go in the field, I never had the distinction of being one of the people. I guess I was fortunate enough that I could go without um, drinking water longer than other people that I might not be one of the first five to ten people to pass out from uh, heat stroke and lack of water, but I certainly wasn't keeping up with the work quota according to this field foreman. And he would just, almost every day that I went to work, he would write me up on a disciplinary report, lock me up in uh, administrative segregation to be disciplined by the disciplinary court. They would hear my case and say, it would say something like, I flatly refuse to work. Well, I never, ever flatly refused to work. I simply worked until I couldn't work anymore or I worked at the fastest pace I was capable of. But the field foreman never wrote the truth on a um, disciplinary report. And the disciplinary board that held um, court, they they knew what the truth was but they would just continue to stack punishment on you and I'd be sent back out to work. It's, it's just, I don't, I can't even, uh, I can't find any words. The good news is you're a smart guy. You're a guy, of, an educated guy, uh, somebody who, who can, can really think for himself. So you get to the point where you realize if you're going to get out, you're going to have to be the one to do it. Is that, is that a fair statement? That. Absolutely. And I would say that I worked as a clerk in an air-conditioned office in the print shop, uh, silkscreen shop at Angola for a little bit over a year. But I knew my ultimate goal was I want to get the hell out of prison. And everybody that I associated with said, you know, you'd probably be better off going to be what they call an inmate counsel substitute or um, prison lawyer working in the law library. And I finally decided I'd apply for that job. I did end up with a job over there. And over the next several years, I learned the law. Uh, I think I became pretty proficient with it. And after I had exhausted all of my appeals in state court, after I had gone through hundreds of thousands of dollars on Uh, about seven different lawyers who all promised to do something, but no one followed through and did what I hired them to do. I finally sat back, spent six months researching and another two to three months writing my own federal writ, 100% on my own or with having other inmate counsels review it, give me their critique. I filed my writ of habeas corpus into the federal court system on my own. Uh, I didn't know what my chances were going to be. I I figured slim to none at best. But I felt like at this point in time, if I'm denied, I'm going to be denied on my own terms and I'll have given it my best shot. I'm 
Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them myself as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. so cool, Billy. He did. (laughs) Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
finally one day they call me for legal mail. Uh, so I get up at like five o'clock in the morning, go eat breakfast. I went to the window where they pass out the legal mail. They had me a little brown envelope and I was scared shitless to open it. I'm like, because if I, it, if the, if it's, if it's the wrong answer, you're done. This is your last if, appeal, if, right? If it's the wrong answer, I had a plan to escape from Angola. And my escape from Angola was I had enough drugs in my possession hidden that probably within 24 hours I was going to OD and that's how I was going to get out of prison. And that had been something I had planned for months, anticipating a negative response from the court. So I'm getting the chills right now. So you've got this envelope uh, and and it's gonna it's gonna basically tell you whether you're gonna live or die. At this point, you've been in prison for 14 years. 14 years. This has yes. been a long time. Exactly. I'd put up with as much as I felt like I could live with, and I felt like my children were getting up in age. And as much as I love them, as much as I felt that they loved me, they continued to visit me almost every opportunity that they got. I felt I was doing them a disservice by having them come to visit me in prison by having them try to explain to their uh, friends in college, uh, why can't you hang out with us this weekend? Oh, because I'm going to the penitentiary to see my dad. Right. And I think I probably, you know, was looking at it the wrong way. And I know I would have hurt them tremendously, but I felt like the best thing for myself and for my children in the long run was to take my life. Fortunately, it didn't come to that because you're sitting here now. And and I, I, so you've got this envelope. What do I, you do? I, do you open it? I went to the law library where I worked and I locked it in the a bottom cabinet. I'm like, I'm the only person here this early in the morning. I just need somebody else around me when I open this up. So about half hour, 45 minutes later, a couple of my close friends that work in the law library lived around me. They came in, and I told my one friend, Mike uh, Singletary, who was my closest friend in the law library at that time, I said, Mike, I got my decision from the federal court. And he says, well, what's it say? I said, I don't know, Mike. I don't have the nerve to open it. And he says, oh, my God. He said, come on, give me that envelope. I'll open it for you. So I said, I said, yeah, but I said, he took it out of my hands after I got it out the cabinet. He opened it. I said, now let me read it, Mike. Don't. So I took a couple of big deep breaths. Uh, and I don't know how my heart was probably beating 200 beats a minute. And I was shaking. And mine is right now. And, and I know the answer. <laughs> and it, I opened the uh, writ to the last page. And all of a sudden, I just stopped shaking. And I guess sort of a smile came over my face. And for the first time since my wife's funeral, I cried. I started crying almost uncontrollably when I read that the magistrate judge recommended that my conviction be set aside and that I be, um, you know, freed. I just, against all odds... I went up against the most conservative federal magistrate in the Eastern District for the state of Louisiana, who, according to what I had been told, had never before granted a writ 
filed by an inmate on their own behalf. That's a happy ending to an incredibly terrible saga. Um, and you're back, and I've gotten to know you well. Uh, Doug is um, now working uh, closely with the Rising Foundation in New Orleans, uh, helping other exonerees to rebuild their lives on the outside, uh, using the skills that he has to uh, help them with everything from, you know, you name it, job applications to tax problems to uh, building their houses to, you know, fixing things. Uh, getting employment, um, he's he's um, he's become a, a tremendous advocate for uh, not only the Innocence Project and Innocence Projects, although in your case you represented yourself, um, but really somebody who has devoted himself to helping others, which is uh, uh, quite an extraordinary thing, and, and makes me uh, really so proud to to know you and to be a part of your life. Um, it's important to note in all of this that uh, the compensation that you were uh, given ultimately by the state was paltry, to say the least, right? Because people ask me all the time, well, these guys must get, they must get millions of dollars when they get out. I mean, after what you went through, 14 years in Angola prison and all the stuff, almost being beaten to death, all the other indignities that you suffered, and, and the fact that you were so egregiously framed. The compensation in the state of Louisiana allows for $25,000 a year for a maximum of 10 years of incarceration. Uh, it's doled out at $25,000 a year over 10 years, which gives a person barely enough to exist on if you have a very modest lifestyle for, ten, if, for yeah. 10 years. Uh, but the other thing, I mean, in my case, it fell short $137,000 short of my actual expenses. Uh, so I didn't even recoup what I spent. Right, on, because you uh, had actually spent on, the money on, on attorneys. On my legal defense. Uh, so you, know, so with, you basically paid $10,000 a year to be locked up for 14 years is what it comes down to. That, that's do about math. what it comes down to. It's important to note that there are 20 states that have no compensation statutes and the ones that do have compensation statutes, some of them are even worse than Louisiana, like Wisconsin. You know, people think that, oh, you were proven that you were wrongfully convicted. You must have gotten millions. Well, no, I'm still struggle to this day. I was never able to repay my children for selling their interest in their family home so I could hire that last attorney. Uh, and it's just not right, not just for me, but for all of the men in Louisiana. And elsewhere, too. And elsewhere. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, there have been 46 exonerations in Louisiana since 1989, and a quarter of them occurred in Jefferson County, the same office that prosecuted you. The sad truth is that there's probably hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of other Doug DeLosas in Louisiana alone, and certainly around the country. And I can tell you that we won't stop until we uh, exonerate as many of them as we possibly can. People say to me, you know, my work at the Innocence Project, they say, well, yeah, but prosecutors, they don't lie. The people don't understand. Like, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's common, which is why we asked Nina Morrison to join us in the studio today. Hey, well, Jason. Welcome to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. So Nina is the senior staff attorney at the Innocence Project. 
Um, she litigates claims for access to post-conviction DNA evidence under both federal civil rights laws and state DNA testing statutes. To date, Ms. Morrison has served as lead or co-counsel for more than 20 innocent prisoners who were freed from prison or even death row based on DNA or other newly discovered evidence. So can you explain to us what, what exactly is a Brady violation? We talk about it a lot on the show. Yeah, so a Brady violation is uh, where a prosecutor doesn't give the defense evidence that either the prosecutor or the police or some other agent of the state like a crime lab has that is favorable to the defendant's case. Sometimes it's proof of their innocence, uh, you know, another suspect who was seen in the area, somebody else who admitted to the crime. Sometimes it's evidence that shows that a witness, you know, who claimed to be an eyewitness was, you know, high out of their minds that night, according to five other people, or couldn't have seen what they said they said. There's a whole array of stuff. It's basically anything that helps the defense. And it's a strange system when you think about it, because... You know, prosecutors and defense lawyers go into court. They're fighting hard in these big murder cases or rape cases or other hard-fought criminal trials. And the way the law is set up is the prosecutor has to give the other side something voluntarily that might make them lose. And we trust them in most places to turn it over. So they say, I'm fulfilling my Brady obligations and there's no check on it until after the case is over and sometimes not even then. Until it's literally too late. And, and this leaves a, a very wide uh, lane open for the bad actors in the system, the bad prosecutors, to do what they feel like on a given day and to really railroad um, people who are just regular people like you and I who get find themselves stuck in this nightmare. People like Doug DeLosa. Yeah. So right? and, and there's even worse news in terms of how it gets dealt with after the trial, because if you discover that a prosecutor in your case withheld Brady material, something favorable to you, your conviction doesn't automatically get reversed. You then, according to U.S. Supreme Court case law, have to show an appeals court that the violation is what the courts call material, which means it actually made a difference. So you basically have to come in after the fact when a jury never heard this information, a witness was never cross-examined on it, and say, you know, judge, if I'd had this, I would have argued this. I would have said that. The jury wouldn't have believed this person, and here's why. You have to kind of have a, a mental do-over, a hypothetical do-over of the trial. And if they say, eh, you know, it made a difference, maybe, but we don't know. It might not necessarily have made a difference in the outcome. So it's what's called harmless error. So Nina, I wanted to ask you, how common are these Brady violations? Is it? You know, we don't know because by definition, many of them are hidden. We know that we have seen them in a very significant proportion of our cases. Um, you know, there's at least 15 featured cases on the Innocence Project website just from the last few years that involve serious Brady violations, which we uncover in the course of investigating a client's other claim of innocence. Um, and and there is no scientific way to study them because by definition, there are things that haven't been turned over. It's sort of like everyone we find is, is in some ways by chance. Um, you don't have a right to get a lot of files after somebody has been convicted. Things get destroyed. I wake up at night sometimes worrying about, you know, these days when Almost everything is electronic. We don't have the piece of paper in the file anymore the way we used to in the cases from the 80s and early 90s. Now it's all in a memo on somebody's computer and they hit delete or that person leaves the office and it's gone. Uh, it's in an email. It's in a voicemail. It's in a text from a witness. It's, you know. You know, it's really a, a level of evil um, that in this particular case 
I don't know what else to call it. The, the prosecutor is just and, straight evil. And, you know, we have, I know Barry Sheck in one of your other episodes um, when you had Barry Gibbs on was talking about this concept of noble cause corruption, which I think is a very real phenomenon. You know, I don't think even the, the prosecutors that we've caught red-handed withholding evidence, um, I think most, if not all of them, honestly believed that they were doing it for a higher purpose, which is they had a killer sitting in the courtroom who was going to get away with murder if they didn't win their case. And so they convinced themselves that whatever they were holding back was not really proof of innocence. It was something the defense would use to create a smokescreen, right? But the law is the law. You have a job as an officer of the court to follow the law and turn it over. And now we know that many of those people were actually innocent. So we see what the real harm is from that skirting the ethical line. Um, so that brings us to the the sort of the practical question of what can be done. We at the Innocence Project are working on a couple of things to police things before trial happens. So one of the things we are trying to do is get judges to take a more active role in ensuring that Brady's guarantee is a real one um, by putting prosecutors on the record issuing court orders to say, I want you to check these five locations to see if there's anything favorable to the defense. And I'm going to have a conference a month before the trial to see how it's going. What have you turned over? What are you looking for? And at that point, the defense lawyer will have an opportunity to speak up and say, I haven't gotten anything on the witness statements. I don't know who, what these witness statements are. And our theory is, you know, for example, two black men came in and did this crime. Are there any reports of suspicious African-Americans in the area, whether you think they did it or not, you know, is there anything we should investigate? And the reason why you want to have the judges be policing it is that if you lie to a judge, you can get charged with contempt of court and lose your law license and even go to jail. And on the back end, we need to take accountability seriously. You know, we need to make sure that the state bars uh have a culture where they can go after uh, just as they would a lawyer who doesn't uh, give a client all their money back or didn't do the job they were hired to do in a trust and estates case or a civil case that they will go after the prosecutors who break the law, even if it's not politically easy to do. And then lastly, you know, it is very hard, as you know, and you've talked about on your show for prosecutors to ever be sued civilly. And even for states or counties to be held liable for the misconduct of prosecutors. Um, prosecutors are what's called uh, immune from suit in all but a, a few very rare cases. And so if a prosecutor knows of some favorable evidence and doesn't turn it over, the court, the Supreme Court has said, well, you can go after them on bar discipline or you can maybe criminally prosecute them. Talk about Fox and Henhouse, right? <laughs> um, but uh, you can't sue them unless there's a, a pattern and practice of violations, and those are very hard to prove. And criminal prosecutions of prosecutors are, are extremely difficult, not least of which because prosecutors generally don't like prosecuting prosecutors. Correct. And they, they will err. I mean, you know, they will give every benefit of the doubt. Oh, they missed it. They were busy. They thought they turned it over. They put it in the wrong notebook. You know, yes, they did. The defense lawyer says they didn't have it, but we think they did. I mean, you know, and look, our clients should have been so lucky to get the benefit of every doubt when they were being accused of a crime. Thank you so much for being on Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. And uh, it was great. Uh, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.